Please be seated. It's a wise practice before we open God's Word and seek to understand it to ask the Holy Spirit's heart. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, and that's certainly true of studying the Scriptures. So let's go to Him in prayer. Lord, we want to know You. We want to be in awe of Your glory. We want to rest in Your promises. And for all of that, we need Your Word. But without Your grace, without Your Holy Spirit, we have scales over our eyes. It's, it's senseless to us until Your Spirit opens us. And so we pray that You would now, that You would take the Word and speak it beyond our ears into the depths of our heart. And that we, this morning, would catch a glimpse of the rest that is ours in Jesus Christ, and that from that rest we would live lives of seeking His glory. Help us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Why can't you all be that enthusiastic? (laughs) Hebrews chapter 4. Take out your Bibles. You really need to read the Word, to see it, so that you can search it for yourselves to know that what I'm saying is truly the Word of God. We, uh, to those of you that are visiting, we've been studying Hebrews for several months now, and the theme of Hebrews is very simple. Jesus is better. That's the theme. That's, that's, that's what all this book is about. Jesus is better. Better is a word of comparison. It's, if, if we say something is, is better, then it, we're saying it's better than something else. So what is Jesus better than? And the answer is literally everything. Now that's a good time to say amen. Jesus is better than literally everything. And that was an important message because the church that was receiving this, and, and as I've told you before, I think the way I understand this, I believe this was a pastor writing to a church, a church of Jewish converts who had begun following Christ. But they started thinking about all that they had left behind. They had left behind the temple. They had left behind the sacrifices. Now they have this invisible high priest who, whoever lives to intercede for them. They can't see it. They don't see the, the sacrifices. They don't have the sounds and the smells of the temple. They're no longer the status quo religion of the area. They're outcasts. They're beginning to see persecution coming. And they're starting to wonder, is Jesus worth it? And some of them, it appears, have already turned away. And the author is going to do two things throughout this book. He wants to woo them and he wants to warn them. He wants to woo them and say, look, nothing you can find out there compares to Jesus. But also he warns them, if you leave Jesus behind, you lose everything. So please pay careful attention to God's word now. It is as much his word to you as it was to the church of the Hebrews 2,000 years ago. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, 
lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us as to them. But the message they heard, and this is speaking of the Jews that were given the promised land, but the first generation of them at least didn't receive it. The message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Well, we've already said goodbye to our departing college students, which means that this week effectively marks the end of summer. And while I'm going to miss our college students, I'm going to miss my own children that have been around the house a lot for the last couple of months, and they'll be going back to school, I'm excited that summer's over. And that's because summers tend to be exhausting. And I think that's kind of funny because in the rhythm of our lives, summers are intended to be a break. They're they're intended to be a time of rest. But oftentimes, they're the most exhausting time of the year. Oftentimes, rest is not very restful, is it? I thought about this a few weeks ago as my family and I went camping And it was a joy. It was wonderful. But at one point, it was about 8 o'clock at night, and the rain was pouring, and I was standing outside pumping sewage thinking, this is not restful. This is not the kind of rest that I was thinking of. But that's true of, of most of our vacations, isn't it? And the times that we look forward to for rest typically are not as restful as they think, as we think they're going to be. In fact, sometimes we can absolutely stress ourselves out planning the perfect vacation, can't we? And sometimes you get back from vacation and you think, I need a vacation to recover from my vacation. And, and, and weekends even are the same. You know, that's why Mondays are so hard. You get to Monday and think, maybe I just don't want vacation. I don't want weekends anymore so that there's no more Mondays. Or think about retirement. You know, we overwork for 40 years in hopes that we'll finally get rest, don't we? But for most of us, the kind of rest we're seeking is, is elusive. Now, when I say rest, probably every person in this room has a different idea of what is restful. But for the Hebrew people, and these were Hebrews that had converted to follow Christ, When they heard the word rest, their minds went to one place. That was Canaan, 
the, the promised land that God had given them. And their minds went to one person, the, the one who led them into the promised land, and that was Joshua. So about 1,400 years before this letter was written, Joshua led the Israelites into this land of rest. But you know, even the promised land wasn't that restful for them. They had enemies. They had famines. They had plagues. They had difficulty upon difficulty. But here's what God is saying to us in this passage. God has an exciting rest for his people. And it's not the plot of land in Canaan that Joshua led them into. Canaan was good, but God has a greater rest for us and a greater Joshua to bring us into that rest. That's what we're going to look at today. Now, if you're looking at this passage and you heard what I just said and you think, that's not at all what I said, uh, what I heard when that passage was read, you're not the only one. As one of my seminary professors said, this is probably one of the most complicated and confusing passages in all the Bible. And so I do want you to see that, this future rest that God has. I want you to see this better Joshua that God has. And I want you to see this promise that God has for us, all of which this passage teaches us. And those are the three things that we're going to look at. The future rest, the better Savior, the enduring promise. Let's look at that. The first, this discussion of future rest. In those 11 verses, the word rest is repeated 10 times. That is one of God's ways of saying, pay attention, here's what I'm teaching you. The theme of this passage is rest. But what's less clear is exactly what kind of rest God's talking about. As I mentioned, most Jewish believers would think of Joshua leading them into the promised land. But there's a backstory there. About 40 years before Joshua led the Israelites into the land, there was a group of hundreds of thousands who were being led by Moses to whom God has, had originally promised the land. And he said, I'll, I'll take care of everything. Just go and take it. What would they find there? They would find rest from their enemies. They would find rest from slavery. They, they would find rest from that seven-day-a-week laboring with nothing to show for it that they had been doing in Egypt. And all they had to do was trust God. Now, that should have been extremely easy. They had just seen the ten plagues of the Passover. They had watched that happen. They had no reason to question God's ability to do what he said. They had seen manna from heaven. They had seen water from a rock. I mean, they had seen incredible stuff. They had seen the Red Sea parted. They have no reason to doubt God. But they did. And they did not believe that they could take the land. And spies went in. And two spies brought back a favorable report. But ten spies said, there's no way we can take it. And so God says, of this generation, all of you, except those two spies, Joshua and Caleb, all of you, will die before I allow my people to go into that land. He did not want the land to be a place of unbelief. And so he said to them, you shall not enter my rest. And so for 40 years they wandered. And it wasn't until that generation had died that Joshua and Caleb led the next generation in. This is a really important point that we looked at last time at the end of Hebrews 3, here at the beginning of 4. You know, the Bible has all sorts of examples, so you can look at it and you tell your children, be brave like Daniel or, or, or be a warrior for God like David. But in this case, Israel is the example, and God is saying, 
don't be like them. Don't do what they did. They were unbelieving. They were faithless, and they didn't enter my rest. You know, just as an aside, this reminds us of the importance of knowing history, and not just biblical history, but all history. Because history shows us that dumb ideas that didn't work in the past probably aren't going to work again. And our culture needs to learn that because we keep trying things that have been tried in the past, but we are so ignorant of history that we think it'll work this time. God is saying, just look back at the generation that didn't believe God. How did that go for them? It didn't go well for them at all. Now, to put it into perspective, this was 1,400 years before Hebrews was written. It's a past event, but if you notice the language of Hebrews, it's talking about future rest. How do we understand that? God is saying, that land that I gave, it was just a symbol. It was just a picture of something far better that I have for you in heaven. In verse 4, he actually explains that future rest by looking backwards, looking back into the very beginning. Look at verse 4. For he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, that's a, a reference to Genesis 2, 2, where God had finished his work of creating, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And he's adding another dimension to this idea of rest. It's not just the promised land, but it's God's rest as well at the creation how God rested from his work. Now, it wasn't that God was tired and he had worked so hard those first six days that he just needed a nap. That wasn't what he was doing in resting. In rest, he was creating a pattern for humanity. We work and 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 then we rest. And he's building this rhythm into the created order. He's showing us this life is not an aimless existence. It's a vital reminder that there's an ordered structure and purpose to life. We don't just do the same thing every day. There's a rhythm to it. It looks forward to something to come. That's a far cry from where they were in Egypt because there was no Sabbath for them. They worked seven days a week. Every day was the same. But the pattern of the Sabbath reminds us there's order and purpose. And the purpose of our existence is to enter into that future rest, into that future promised land of heaven. Why does he mention that here, though? Why does he mention God's rest at the beginning now to these Hebrews? Well, follow me here. Because the Sabbath was a creation ordinance, and it was placed on the seventh day, after six hard days of work, and it reflected God's covenant with Adam. Do this and live. Obey me, and you'll enter into the rest. Work, and then rest. But you know what happened, don't you? Adam, the first man, sinned, and it became impossible for man to enter God's rest on his own. In other words, we couldn't work, work, work and then rest because we could never do enough to earn our way into God's rest. That's what sin had done. It had separated us from God. It had excluded us from God's rest in heaven, and there's nothing we could do to fix it. And what was going to be required 
was a new creation, a second creative work. And that's what the Lord Jesus came to do, was to establish a new creation by, event, by redeeming a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and restoring us to a new heavens and new earth. That's why it's fascinating. You look at Genesis. How does Genesis start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then you look at John, and it starts off in the beginning. Now it goes into Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Tells us all things were made by Him. But here's what it's doing. It's saying there's a volume two of creation. The first was this creation of the world, but man fell from it. We could not enter into God's rest. And so there was a new creation, and that is what Jesus came to do. And the new creation has a new Sabbath day. Just as God had rested on the Sabbath day when his work was done, There was a rest that came when Christ's work was done. And Christ was raised on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And Christians observe Sunday as the Sabbath, as we have for 2,000 years, because God's new creation was completed in Christ on the Sabbath. That's why, for 2,000 years, Christians have set apart Sunday rather than Saturday for worship, because we are acknowledging gladly that our entrance into God's rest is not dependent on our works, as if we can work six days and enter into heaven, enter into that rest as a result of it, but we rest first, and then we work from that rest. We find ourselves in Christ, and then we work from it. The Jewish Sabbath, in a sense, it was a picture of the law, but the Christian Sabbath is a picture of grace. It's a down payment on our eternal rest with Christ Jesus. That's the first thing, a future rest. The second thing, the, the second point the text is making is there's a better Savior. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, if Joshua leading in, them into the promised land had given them what God really intended, if he had given them what God's best were for man, then there wouldn't need to be any talk of a future rest. But you know, that land wasn't restful. There were enemies, there were plagues, there were famines. A clear reminder that there's a greater rest still to come. This is hard to see because we're reading a translated version of the text, but there's a play on words here. You know the name Joshua from the Old Testament. It means God saves. Then you come to the New Testament, and it's typically translated Yeshua or Jesus. Jesus and Joshua are the same name, just the Hebrew and the Greek versions of it. It's the name God saves. Now, the reason our Bibles translate it Jesus rather than Yeshua or Joshua is so that we don't confuse the two characters. But the name at the core is the same. And the point is this. There was a first Joshua, and he could not provide you rest. That land, it had all sorts of difficulties. But there's a second Joshua, a greater Joshua, and he has true 
lasting rest. Listen to it from his own words. Look with me at Matthew 11. Matthew 11, Jesus looks to the crowd, sees them being crushed under the weight of their sin and the burdens of self-righteousness. And he looks and he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This ties it all together. We spoke of the promised land, Canaan, as rest. We spoke of God's rest from creation. We spoke of the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. What ties it all together is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ connects all these things, not in a particular geographic land, not in a day, but in Jesus Christ himself who gives us true lasting rest. And it's not just future rest, it's present rest. If we have come to saving faith in Christ, then our souls are able to rest in him. So to to, to equate it back to, to Egypt and slavery to sin, back in Egypt, Israel worked hard, relentlessly for Pharaoh. But there was no rest for them. They produced nothing for themselves. They made bricks without straw, and that meant constant laboring and always more to be done. You know, that's a picture of salvation by works. If I am trying to earn my way to heaven, as one of the Puritans said, I would do better to try to climb a ladder made of sand to heaven than to get there by my works. You cannot do it. The law... If it's a means for us to justify ourselves, it will crush us. It is worse than Pharaoh. The law says do, do, do. But Christ looks upon us and says done. Rest in me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm not like Pharaoh. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. The two Joshua's. As wonderful as the Old Testament Joshua was, and he was a great character, one worth emulating in a lot of ways, but he could only bring God's people into an earthly promised land. Jesus, the greater Joshua, uh, brings us into heavenly promised land, and the two stand as a picture of two different kinds of rest. One, an earthly rest of seeking the good life, seeking ease, seeking comfort, and the other, eternity face to face with God. That longing you have and I have in your heart cannot be answered by anything in this world. The reason rest seems so elusive is because we will not experience the fullness of rest that our souls crave until we are with Christ. And in making this Jesus-Joshua comparison, what God is saying to you, beloved, is which Joshua are you trusting and which promised land are you living for? Is the impetus of your life to seek the good life, to have it all in this world, to climb the ladder, 
all the while doing so at the expense of knowing and enjoying Jesus Christ. It was the Lord Jesus who said, you cannot serve two masters. If you are living to build the promised land in this world, it'll crush you. If you are living for that land to come in Christ Jesus, it will exceed every expectation that you could have of it. So we have a future rest. We have a better Savior But third, this pastor who loves his flock so much and his heart is being ripped out because he sees them wandering and some of them going back to the temple and some of them thinking about leaving Judaism, uh, leaving Christianity, he says to him, be sure that you enter that rest. That's That's the third thing. There's an enduring promise to that rest. Remember God's people during the Exodus, the Hebrew people, they left Egypt, they heard the promises of God. God says, I'll give you this land. What did they say back to him? Ultimately, they said, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we had it pretty good in Egypt. We had the leeks and the garlic and the fish, and we'd rather go back than be stuck out here. Did you leave us here to die? Is that why you brought us out here, God? They didn't believe and they didn't enter into the rest. And that is why this author keeps bringing up this parallel. He says, you know what? If you've heard about Jesus and you've thought, you know, there's better things out there, you, like them, are in great danger. They've seen a greater act of deliverance than Moses delivering them out of the promised land. They've been delivered from sin. They've seen a greater Joshua leading them in. They have Jesus But what are they doing with it? Look at verse 2. For good news came to us, just as to them. In other words, we've heard the gospel. They heard it. They heard it in the Old Testament. It wasn't as fully fleshed out. We have more. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Well, who were those who listened? Joshua and Caleb. They had faith. They trusted God's promises. The balance of the people did not. They had so many benefits. They had so much going for them. They knew all of God's works firsthand, but they had no faith. That's why they didn't enter the land, because they didn't believe. That's the promise, though, that endures today. You may enter by faith, but only by faith. And I know our world loves the idea of faith. You just got to have faith. God's interest is not that you have faith in just something God's interest is that you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's faith in the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. Now, sometimes people will say, well, I've I've accepted Jesus. Maybe you have. But, you know, I think we have a very anemic definition of faith. The Reformers understood three aspects of saving faith. And and I want you to think about where you are within kind of a continuum that I'm going to tell you. The first was knowledge. They simply, it's simply knowing the answers, knowing right answers. The Hebrew people certainly had that. They knew what God had done for them. Second is assent. You agree to it. Yeah, now it's all good and well. Jesus died, he raised from the dead. That's great. But you know, your life isn't affected by it. The third is trust. 
where you say, this is the most essential truth to my existence, that Jesus Christ died for me. And it reorients your life. The the Israelites, they had the first two. They knew what God had done. They agreed with it. But they weren't willing to trust him, and they didn't enter the land. Well, it's too late for them. That's, we're not here to deal with them. The author's writing to his people, and I'm speaking to you. What about you? The promise still stands, but what do we learn from their mistakes? Look at verse 1. This is where he's saying, learn from their mistakes. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, and, and how long is it going to stand We don't know when Jesus is going to come back, but I know that once your final breath has left your body, that promise will be null and void to you if you have not trusted in Christ. It will be too late. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. We ought to be deeply concerned, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That word fear is strong language. Why is he being so insistent that people inspect their own hearts to be sure that they're really of the faith? Because if they fall short, there is no second chance. You, you see that in the rich man and Lazarus. There was no second chance. He had heard it all. He knew all the right answers, but he never had faith, and there was no second chance for him. But if there is still breath in your lungs, then this promise still endures for you and for me. And so let me ask you, first, Scots, have you trusted the promise? I mean, really trusted, not just, not just know it, not just intellectually ascended to it, but are you willing to, to, risk, to set your life upon Jesus Christ? I love the story of, of Charles Blondin, the tightrope walker across Niagara Falls. And he would go back and forth, and he would have crowds there, and they would be amazed at what he could do. And he would say, "Uh, how many of you think I can walk across this tightrope carrying a brick in each hand? And they would say, we do, we do, we do. And then he'd go across, and they would be ecstatic. And then he would get a wheelbarrow. And he would say, how many of you think I can wheel this wheelbarrow across the tightrope? And they would say, we do, we do, we do. And he would do it, and they'd be ecstatic. And then he'd say, how many of you think I can wheel this wheelbarrow across the tightrope with somebody in it? And they'd say, we do. And he'd say, he'd look at somebody and say, good, get in. That's what Hebrews is saying here. It's not simply that you know the answers. The Hebrew people knew all the answers. But they weren't willing to trust God. Where are you? Have you entered into the rest? Have you really trusted in Jesus Christ? You know, if your thought is that coming to church is just part of you being a good person and checking boxes, so in the end, God really can't find anything to blame you for, you have drastically misunderstood the gospel. The gospel is, I rest in Jesus Christ because he has done everything needed for my salvation. And I trust him. I get in the wheelbarrow with him. I am willing to bet my whole eternity on what Jesus has done. Have you done that? Why did some fall away in the wilderness? Why did some fall away in the church 2,000 years ago? And why do people fall away today? Typically, it's because people are so distracted by the false promises 
of the earthly promised land, that they are not willing to walk by faith to that eternal, invisible to us promised land of heaven. And so the most that they'll often do is give Jesus a head nod on Sundays to make sure he's pacified. They don't look at him, as Pastor Walton read earlier, as their propitiation, the one who satisfied God's wrath for their sake. He's saying, don't fall away. Don't become so distracted with this world, the promises, we'll say the lies of this world, that you don't have time to enter in. Don't fall away. Even when the Christian life is costly, don't fall away. Even when the Christian life is hard, don't fall away. God does not owe them an apology for anything they have given up, but they owe God everything for what Christ has done. And the same is true for us. Why do some endure to the end? Because the Spirit has taken away those scales from their eyes and they've encountered the glory of the risen Christ. And when you have seen the glory of the risen Christ, all those earthly glories of the earthly promised land fade away. Faith is wholeheartedly following and trusting in Jesus. Not perfectly. But at the core of your being, trusted Him. The problem was faith. And many of those in the church had never tested, do I really have faith? But if they had looked at their lives, they would have seen they had never exercised faith. They had heard it. They knew the answers. But they didn't trust. It's like somebody going to the gym and getting on their workout clothes and putting on their headphones and learning what every machine does and talking to people about how great working out is, but never once lifting a weight. That's what it is to profess to be a Christian but not trust Christ. And that's why many did not enter in. What of you? Have you come to that faith that says, I will follow Christ wherever he calls The test of faith is not so much, have you heard, but what have you done with what you've heard? Again, what Pastor Walton read earlier. Do not be hearers only, but doers, deceiving yourselves. If you're just a hearer, the only person deceived is you. First, Scots, are you making every effort in the Christian life? Now, if you and I were writing this letter, we would not have said strive to enter in, because that sounds so worksy. But here's the point. If you're a true believer, that's what you're going to do to be sure that you truly belong to Christ and that your heart belongs to Christ and that your heart belongs to that heavenly, eternal promised land. And so test yourselves. Are you, are you making every effort to serve Christ? Are you making every effort to, to be active in His church, to be an encourager to brothers and sisters around you? Are you making every effort to share your faith with others? Are you, are you making every effort to go beyond just being a Sunday pew sitter, to being engaged in the work of the ministry day after day? The Hebrew people had the promise, but not the faith to enter. We need to grab hold of the promise and walk by faith. How do we apply this text? Let me give you a couple quick applications. First, as Christians, we need to take seriously the Sabbath rest that God has established. 
A lot of people view the Sabbath rest as just a day of physical rest, and for those who work really hard during the week, it is a good to have a day uh, to be more still. But that the heart of the Sabbath is not doing nothing. It's not idleness. The heart of the Sabbath day is to do whatever it is that causes us to rest more in Christ. So if you ever wake up and say, I'm just so tired today. I don't think I'm going to go to church. I need to, I need to get my Sabbath rest. What you're saying is I absolutely have no idea why there's a Sabbath. The Sabbath day exists for our souls to be recalibrated to our true north, the promised land where Jesus Christ is and where we will one day be, and to enjoy that rest in him now. That's the heart of the Christian Sabbath. It's to set apart the day, to draw near to God, to worship morning and evening, to be in your word, to be in fellowship with other believers. So we ought to take the Sabbath seriously. That's first application. Second application, we need to learn from history. If certain things have been tried a thousand times through the years and have failed every time, we probably shouldn't try them again. History is, uh, in a sense, it's a form of common grace from God. And when we can see that certain things, whether it is wandering away from Jesus Christ, whether it is progressive Christianity, whether it is socialism, whatever it is, if we think this is going to work this time, just look back at history and we will see that those things have never worked. A bad idea repeated often doesn't become a good idea. Third, just a call for self-awareness. The Hebrew people would have had no idea that they were unbelieving. Only two of them trusted God. Only two of them entered in. And unfortunately, so many of us assume that because we go to church, because we've made certain pronouncements with our life, that we really are believers. Would those who watch your life see you as someone who rests in Christ, rests in what he's done? Not idleness, but the rest that comes from knowing the God who upholds the universe every moment of this day and knowing that he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The, the mature Christian ought to be marked by a sense of rest much the same way that a child can rest in its mother's arms even in the midst of turmoil. Inspect your own heart. Is your heart a heart that is in rest in Jesus Christ? Or is it restless after the things of this world? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our rest because we could not achieve rest on our own. We could not work our way, and so Christ is the way. He is our rest. May we rest in him, and I pray that every man, woman, and child in this room would be diligent to do exactly what this text has called us to do, to fear, to be sure that we truly are trusting in, resting in Christ, and to strive by all his work in